Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. I'm your host, Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. So glad that you could join us today. As always, your support for these programs is deeply appreciated. We could not do this without your, your assistance. So thank you very much for all that you do to keep the VMHC and its programming going. Our speaker for today is Ty Sedgley. Ty is Professor Emeritus of History at West Point, uh, where he taught for 20 years. He served in the US Army for 36 years, retiring as a Brigadier General. He is the Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton College, as well as a New American Fellow. General Sedgley has published numerous books, articles, and videos on military history, including the award-winning West Point History of the Civil War. His talk today is uh, on his uh, book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with Myth of the Lost Cause. Uh, this is a very fascinating book uh, that challenges the traditions of the Confederate legacy and explores why some of our country's oldest wounds have never healed. From Ty's Southern childhood, uh, he was born in Alexandria, Virginia. To his service in the U.S. Army, every part of his life reinforced the lost cause narrative that revered Lee and claimed that the Confederates were underdogs who lost the Civil War with honor. Now, Ty's view has radically changed, and he believes that American history demands a reckoning. So we're very pleased to have with us today, Ty Sedgley. Adam, thank you so much for that kind introduction. And I just want to thank everyone for coming out today. It's a great honor for me to talk to this audience. Uh, what The former Virginia Historical Society, I, I found some history on that. A good friend of mine, uh, Charlie Bryan, told me about this. I, he's former uh, president. And I did not realize that... Uh, uh, that the Virginia, what was then the Virginia Historical Society, started on 707 East Franklin Street in downtown Richmond, uh, the home of Robert E. Lee or the Lee family during the war. Um, and that Matt, the famous Matthew Brady picture was actually taken uh, on the porch of that building that uh, that was started out as the Virginia Historical Society. So it's it's my great honor to be talking to you today. And I am going to talk about my book. Um, and sort of the the thesis of it is that the um, it's ugly. It, it's hard to confront our past because it's so ugly, but we must confront our past. The only way to prevent a racist future is to first acknowledge and understand our racist past. And with that, I'll, I'll, I'll start. So in 2015, uh, I gave a lecture, uh, an online lecture at a conservative, uh, uh, new conservative organization on the cause of the civil war. And I said that, uh, the civil war, people don't want to believe that citizens of the Southern states were willing to fight and die to preserve the morally repugnant institution of slavery. And I said it was the only cause was slavery. And this is what 99.9% what .9 of American historians believe, but it went viral. It's now had close to 35 million views. And I have a public email account or had one when I was at West Point and they, people wrote to me uh, hundreds and hundreds of emails, including two actual death threats 
uh, saying that uh, because I said the Civil War was about slavery in my blue uniform. The Army investigated me for political speech. The Nation, a left-leaning organization, said I was a propagandist for the Army. The Stars and Stripes, a little bit more on the right, said that I was too close to a political organization. So what I found from that is history is dangerous. It's dangerous because it, 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 it goes after our myths and our identity. And when a person does that, goes after those myths and identities, the reaction can be ferocious. Well, in um, this is uh, probably a little bit earlier than that. I was uh, at West Point. Again, I spent most of, my, uh, most of my career there, majority of my career there. And I was chair of the Memorialization Committee. And, uh, and what we found at the time is that West Point was really suffering from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Over 100 graduates killed in those two wars. And we had no singular place to put the, uh, to put the dead, to recognize the dead. And so I had this came up with this idea to put uh, to create a new memorial room uh, to rec rec uh, for the 1500 uh, people who uh, cadets, then graduates who gave the last full measure of devotion from the War of 1812 through the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I got we got money for it. We got a design. Everything was going well. But the question is, who should go in there? And in particular, should those people who graduated uh, fought for the Confederacy in gray died? Uh, should they be put in our new memorial room? And I argued vociferously. I argued, if I may say, I thought brilliantly, uh, uh, bombarding the our, our people, our uh, leaders with facts. And here's why. I said they fought against the United States. They killed U.S. Army soldiers. They renounced their oath. Uh, and uh, they uh, and then they did it for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. And if that wasn't enough, the building where they were going to go in, the money was given by an anti-Confederate former superintendent. Uh, and he said that he would never forgive those who followed false gods. And in fact, his will, which became federal law, said no unworthy subject should go in there. By that, he meant Confederates. I thought it was a slam dunk argument. So I gave that that talk, uh, maybe, I don't know, 2012 or something, uh, 2011, and I lost. The, our, our leadership at the time said, we want to bring people together. We don't want to be like the Sunni and the Shia fighting forever. We want to forgive and get along. Well, the Sunni-Shia analogy is probably the worst historical analogy in the history of the world. And I lost. And uh, But I should, have, I should have realized that the people around that room, mainly white men, grew up with the same lies, the same um, uh, myth that I did. They grew up with the, the, this myth of the lost cause of the Confederacy. As, as, a, as a great poet, Robert Penn Warren said, the Civil War is our felt history. And they thought that the war, which is what I grew up with, wasn't fought over slavery. Well, that's just not true. Of course, it was fought over slavery. That's what the secessionists all said it was. They they probably thought that enslaved people weren't, it wasn't that bad under slavery. Well, slavery was an abomination that featured lash, rape, and breaking, breaking families apart for profit. Um, they probably thought that slavery would have ended soon after the war anyway. Well, the price of enslaved people was an all-time high in 1860. It wasn't going anywhere. They probably thought that the North won because of more manpower, material, and money. Well, that's just not true. All the South had to do was not lose the war. The North had to act, the North, and by, actually I won't say the North, I'll say the United States. The United States had to mobilize like no nation had ever mobilized before, come South and defeat multiple armies in an area twice the size of modern France and Germany. They probably thought that Ulysses S. Grant was a drunk and a butcher. Well, no, from my vantage point, Grant was the finest soldier ever to wear army blue. And they probably would have thought that that post-war reconstruction, you know, wasn't that bad. In fact, it was a failure. They would have thought that reconstruction was a failure because uh, it, it didn't work, you know. But of course, we know that reconstruction was the closest we've come to a biracial 
democracy. It featured the 13th Amendment ending slavery, the 14th Amendment uh, granting equal uh, rights to all Americans, most important amendment we have probably, and the 15th Amendment that gave the vote to all men. And and it, it, it failed eventually, but only because of white terrorism. And they would have said that Robert E. Lee was the finest man uh, of the war, maybe one of the finest men uh, who ever lived. That's really what I grew up with. The problem with their understanding of that and the problem with this lost cause of the Confederacy that I just outlined is that it was one of the pillars of a white supremacist society. So if you think of the lost cause uh, myth, along with white, along with Confederate monuments, segregation laws, white terror, lynching, black disenfranchisement, uh, Jim Crow, these are the pillars of a white supremacist society, of a racial police state, which is what the South was when I was born. I didn't get that, that they didn't understand that. And, and I didn't explain it well enough. So when they voted against me and said, we're going to bring Confederates in there, I went back to my wife, tail between my legs, chin on my chest, saying I failed. I could not um, get the leaders, th these these uh, army officers that include general officers to understand why we shouldn't put Confederates in our in the, at the memorial room at the United States Military Academy. And she said, Ty, did you tell them why you're so passionate about this? I said, no, of course not. So, well, if you really want to change people's mind, you're going to have to tell people how you grew up. I went, oh my gosh, that is terrifying because I'm going to have to show my own vulnerability, my own racist background of growing up in the South in a society that, that venerated the Confederacy and Lee. And so that's sort of what this book is, is going back and trying to understand why I did grow up with those. And it starts really as soon before I can remember. In fact, Lee was the great, greatest soldier that ever lived in my books. I brought, I brought a couple props. I hope you don't mind. This was my first chapter book, Meet Robert E. Lee. You can see him. He looks resplendent in his uh, gray uniform with, the, with the, the Confederate flag in the background. And then right here, you can see is the little step up lion uh, that, that I would have had. And this was given, this was my first chapter book. I almost wore the spine out of it. Um, I had books like this, which were the, this was the Virginia uh, history book that was that fourth graders had. We also had one that seventh graders and juniors had. And just if you look at what this had, you know, you can see that I just have one picture here uh, that this is the war between the states. That's what it's called. And in the state of Virginia uh, during that time. So these were what I was given. And that, by the way, that book was created by the Virginia General Assembly uh, to give to, to give to students in Virginia to ensure that they understood that segregation was the correct way of living. Because, and the way to do that is to ensure that slavery wasn't that bad. And in these books, slavery is not that bad. Masters just whip their slaves because they're paternal. That's what, that's the way that fathers dealt with their children back then. It, it, it's monstrous, but that's what the Virginia Assembly, General Assembly created for my generation so that we would understand uh, this the right way. Over the, the mantle in my house, we had the four flags of the Confederacy to include the stainless banner. That's the flag, almost all white with the Confederate battle flag in the, in the uh, upper, you know, upper corner of it. Why was it a white flag? To show the white supremacy, but that, that we're fighting this war to, to maintain um, whites in the position of power. That's why it was created. Uh, but of course, I didn't know any of that. So my books and my childhood in Alexandria, Virginia, reinforced that. But I went, as I went back through, I started realizing other parts of my life in Alexandria. You know, when I first met my wife, she was an Air Force, Air Force brat. Her dad went to West Point from, from Portsmouth, Virginia, as a matter of fact. 
Um, and I said, I was from Alexandria and she said, well, that's not really the South, is it? And I was like, ho, 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 please. Uh, you know, I was upset because, because this is, you know, my identity was as a, a, a educated Christian gentleman. And of course, uh, Alexandria was in the South and, and, it, and I didn't realize really how much it was in the South. And as I did my research, I realized that Alexandria and Arlington used to be part of the district of Columbia. I never knew that. It, it was when when Jefferson, Madison and Hamilton created the 10 square miles, the room where it happens from the, the musical Hamilton, um, they created the, this this 100 square miles uh, and put Alexandria and Arlington in because George Washington demanded it when he was president. He said, you're not having a capital without my hometown of Alexandria. And they and so when did Alexandria leave to go back to Virginia in 1847? to protect the slave trade. And so I found this racial history everywhere I went in the places I lived and the institutions that gave me purpose. In Alexandria, there's a there's a monument, there was, just, just was taken down on Prince Street to the Confederate soldiers. Uh, I was bused, at, and as a sixth grader, I went to an all white uh, elementary school from K through five public school. And then in the sixth grade, I was bused across town when we were, like, finally were doing integration, this is the early seventies. And what was the name of the school I was bused across town to? Robert E. Lee Elementary School, named in 1961 as a reaction to integration when when, when uh, Virginia was still doing massive resistance from the bird machine and were trying to keep the white kids away from, from black kids. So my hometown of Alexandria has scores of names of streets named after the Confederacy, even though it spent less than 12 hours in the Confederacy before the U.S. Army occupied it. Um, so Alexandria set my character. I, I, my dad was a teacher and coach at Episcopal High School. Uh, the the hill, the high school, you know, the Holy Hill, that's what it was called, which which uh, had a, a huge plaque to Confederates. And the descendants of Lee all went there. We all knew who they were. They had real status because of that. So uh, in for high school, my dad moved, took his first headmaster's job. He was a coach and teacher at a school in Monroe, Georgia, Walton County, about I don't know, 40 miles east of Atlanta, rural Georgia. And that was called, uh, you know, and I went to a SAG Academy. Those were schools that popped up like mushrooms throughout the South when they finally created um, uh, forced integration in the late 1960s. So in 1969, the school was founded to ensure white kids didn't have to go to school with black kids. And that's why I went to high school. 19 kids in my graduating class, all white. I went, I lived in Monroe, Georgia. I had no idea until decades later that the city was actually 50% African-American because I didn't talk to a black kid my entire time living in Monroe. I also didn't know that Monroe had a terrible uh, racial uh, violence in its background, in its history. It was the site of the last mass lynching in American history, 1946, when four of Monroe's citizens, black citizens, were, were ambushed uh, and slaughtered by a posse of, of, of white citizens uh, to include one uh, um, a veteran. And I found over and over again that veterans suffered uh, from uh, uh, from these lynchings in World War One and World War II. Uh, but so my town was was a lynch town in a way. I never knew that while I lived there because that hidden racial history, nobody talked about it. In, in Northern Virginia, 11 black men were lynched in the period from 1877 to about 1950. So there was these, these all around me, there was this evidence of racial violence that I just ignored. Now for college, I wanted to go back to Virginia. I wanted to be an educated Christian gentleman. And of course, what would be the best place to, to learn to be a gentleman? 
Washington and Lee University. Uh, the, uh, the idea of, of, of those two gentlemen, and I, I think they were, that's what my textbook said. That's what my, all the books said that Lee was the greatest gentleman. And that was certainly inculcated uh, at me at Washington and Lee. Uh, and I mean, so when, when I was there, I took an ROTC scholarship. Uh, I took it because my dad was a teacher. My mom was a nurse. They divorced. I had no money. So I took an ROTC scholarship, not because I wanted to go in the military, because I just wanted to go finish my school, Washington and Lee University. And so I just tell you one story about my time there. And it was my commissioning ceremony. Uh, I, and in, in 1984, it's when I graduated. We, we had the graduation out on the lawn. I don't really remember that. But I do remember really clearly getting commissioned. Back then, WNL had an ROTC program. And so we all went in there. And I still have a picture of me going up on the stage of Lee Chapel. Uh, and it, uh, back then I had a full head of hair. It was a glorious time in my life. Uh, not only that, but, but back in the eighties, you know, we actually, with the army allowed longer hair than they do now. Uh, and I'm by this picture of Lee, he's looking resplendent, almost saint-like the, the, the light just captures him. So it's almost a halo around his head. Uh, and then I go and I get the, the, the my commission next to the recumbent statue. For those of you that haven't been in Lee Chapel, Lee Chapel is a worshipful place. Uh, it is called a chapel, and yet there's no Christian iconography in there. No cross, no hymnal, no pulpit, nothing that would make it look like a church, except there is an apse, a sanctuary. I'm raised Episcopalian. I, I was an acolyte. I know what the what a church looks like. And there is an altar in the apse, in the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, uh, where a priest would normally do Eucharist, except lying on the altar is Robert E. Lee in repose, in his Confederate uniform, on the battlefield, uh, boots uh, uh, visible, his hand, one hand over his heart, the other hand grabbing the scabbard of his sword, ready to rise up for the people of the South, the white people of the South, to protect his social system. So I grabbed my commission there in front of the, the, the recumbent statue, surrounded by Confederate flags. Then I went back down to the pews, I raised my right hand, and I gave the oath of office. Now, many of you, some of you know people, or maybe you've taken the oath, whether you've served in the military or you've served in the federal government, we all take the same oath. Written in 1862, I didn't realize this till decades later when I was doing the research for the book, it's an anti-Confederate uh, uh, oath. So when it says uh, uh, that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, it's talking about Confederates. When it says I have no purpose of evasion, it's talking about Confederates. So I took an anti-Confederate oath surrounded by Confederate flags. I, I would have not even considered that it would have been wrong. I thought of Lee as a great American. Uh, I, I was wrong. In, in, I was wrong. So I, then I started my army career and I would spend, you know, between ROTC and, uh, and serving in the army, nearly four decades in the army. Uh, came to love it. I love the, I love the army. My first duty assignment was Fort Bragg. And we have 10 army bases named after uh, after people that served in the Confederacy. Uh, and I, I just give you one example of that. And that is Fort Gordon, which is outside of Augusta, Georgia, um, named after John Brown Gordon. Gordon was a fine battlefield commander. Unlike most of the rest of these forts, he was a fine battlefield commander, but never served a day in the United States Army. Uh, not a day. He killed U.S. Army soldiers. That was his only military experience. And later... Uh, after the war, he gave a speech to black Charlestonians. And he said that if you, the black people, if the, if, if you, the black people were to demand equality, the 40 million of us white people will exterminate. That's the word he used, exterminate the 4 million of you black people in a race war. He said that. 
Then he founded the KKK and led it in Georgia and became a segregationist governor and, and later senator and said, vote for me. I will maintain the God-ordained white supremacy now and forever. Fort Benning never served in the U.S. Army and was a leading secessionist from Georgia. In fact, came is his, really his most important uh, job during the whole thing. He only raised to, rose to brigade command, a one star in the in the in the Civil War. Not that important, um, but he he uh, went to Virginia during the Virginia secession and said, "You must secede, otherwise you will face black equality." And I and I would rather have. And he said, "I, I would rather have fa famine and pestilence rather than black equality." So we have Fort Polk, who is just maybe the worst commander on either side. Bragg, terrible. Um, uh, Pickett, war criminal. Uh, he actually uh, executed, uh, summarily executed 22 U.S. Army soldiers. And then after the war, fled to Canada because he knew he'd be uh, conv probably convicted as, as a war criminal. Some of the other ones raped enslaved women. We, have, we, we know that for sure. One of the other uh, posts, uh, since I'm talking about Virginia here, is Fort Belvoir. Um, that's up near Alexandria, near my hometown. And it was originally named Fort Humphreys after a really distinguished uh, Civil War general uh, who was at Fredericksburg. There's a statue of him at Fredericksburg, statue of him at uh, Gettysburg. He was at Appomattox during at least surrender and, and was a leading engineer in the 19th century. And they changed it to Belvoir. Well, what is Belvoir? Belvoir is the name of a slave plantation, excuse me, that, that uh, burned to the ground in 1783 owned by Lord Fairfax. So it was, it was a lawyer, by the way, Lord Fairfax was a loyalist in the American revolution, yet we name it after him. Now I don't, I try not to use the word plantation anymore because it makes you seem like you're thinking of Tara and hoop skirted women on the, on the veranda sipping iced tea as the wind whispers through the Spanish moss. No, for me, plantations are enslaved labor farms. It's like going to a site of mass atrocity. Sure. There were a few white people there, but majority of people on a plantation were enslaved men, women, and children who, it, it was a site of mass atrocity. It, it, to, to me, it's almost like going to Dachau. It's that horrible. And, and so we shouldn't say these word plantation. So I, I don't use that term, but Belvoir was that. It was an enslaved labor farm. We have records of Lord Fairfax at the age of 83 saying he paid 10 shillings to bed a Negro winch. In other words, to rape an enslaved woman. So we changed this in 1935. Uh, because Howard W. Smith, a congressman from Alexandria, um, was upset about that and wasn't going to vote for the Social Security bill in 1935. So FDR changes it to Belvoir rather than keeping it after Humphreys. So we have a, a also have a post named after an enslaved labor farm. Even worse than that, to me, is in Arlington National Cemetery, where there's a 32-foot-high monument to the Confederacy that was put there in 1914 at probably the most racist period of American history. And it has, it, it's, it's a cruel, it's the cruelest monument in the country put up by Moses Ezekiel was the, uh, the architect. And he created this to show that the South was right, that slaves were happy in their condition, that slavery was the best system of labor and the South should, and the South was right. And the, and the United States was wrong. And on that figure is actually a, uh, an enslaved woman overweight, the sort of mammy representation. And she's got a tear in her eye as she grabs a baby grabs as she cradles a baby from her departing Confederate officer, her master, and supporting the war going off the war. And there's another little white boy clinging to her 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 uh, uh, apron to show that they love her so much. It's at the most it's the worst racist trope around. And there are about hundred and some graves around that put in in the early 20th century. And every year the Confederate flag goes onto those grave sites. And every year, the president of the United States, at least through this last one, put a wreath 
from the president onto this monument every year. So we have to ask ourselves why. And, and by the way, Arlington National Cemetery is owned by the United States Army. It's not a VA, Veterans Administration, it's the Army. Why did we do this? Well, to understand why we did this, we have to understand that the Army was a white supremacist organization as well. For most of its history, it was a segregationist army. Uh, and in World War, these posts were named in World War I, about half in World War I, half in World War II. And it was at a time when the South was a racial police state. Southern politicians, remember the South was a one-party racial police state. Democrats controlled it. Um, and they stayed in office forever and had the, the, so much power in all the committees. So one, the army had to name these to appease, but the other was the, the army believed in this stuff. So in fact, John J. Pershing, who commanded the uh, uh, the army and the army expeditionary forces in, in World War I, said that, um, uh, gave this sort of secret brief to his officers, quote, we must not eat with them about black troops, must not shake hands with them, seek to talk to them or meet with them outside the requirements of military service. We must not commend too highly these troops, especially in front of white soldiers. And if that's not enough, through the, the, through the interwar period, the army created a study group uh, to study the, quote, problem of Negro manpower. It thought wrongly that black troops wouldn't fight despite all the evidence against that. And so I read through all of these in the Army Historic and Education Center in Carlisle Barracks. And there was one that really struck me where it said, and I'm quoting here, the Negro is lower in the scale of evolutionary development than the white. So the army had a racist, a white supremacist ideology throughout World War I and World War II. So that's my army career. And then I, I got, I went to West Point. I, I love West Point. It has the greatest mission of any uh, institution I know of. Its mission is to educate, train, and inspire leaders of character for the nation who live the values of duty, honor, country. So proud to be there. And one day I was walking uh, on, on campus, on post, as we call it. I was living on Lee, in Lee Housing area uh, on Lee Road by Lee Gate. And as I was walking through there, I walked to go get some swag at the cadet store for my family. West, West Point's got great, great swag. And I go by the barracks. Our barracks, it's our highest honor to name our barracks, uh, like a dormitory. And I go by Pershing, uh, correction, Eisenhower, and then Pershing, and then Grant. And then I get to the sign for Lee Barracks. And I look at that and I just stare at it and I go, you know, my identity now wasn't uh, Southern Christian gentleman. It was army officer. It was scholar. And, and it was, uh, you know, I, 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 I was thinking differently. And, and of course I've trained historian and I looked at that and I said, how the hell did that get here? And I went running all over campus, all over campus, looking for the thing. And I'm like more than a dozen things named after Confederates, mainly Lee. So I said, where, how did that get here? And, and, and so I went into the archives. Nobody knew, nobody ever even thought, nobody cared. So I went into the archives and it turns out in the 19th century, West Point banished uh, Confederates from its memory. It was an anti-Confederate uh, monument of itself. It, the post was. Um, the cemetery had no Confederates buried there. Uh, our monument was to the War of the Rebellion, the regular Army soldiers uh, for the U.S. Army who died fighting against the Confederates. It's 70 feet. It's, 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 a, it's the major monument on post to the War of the Rebellion. Our, our memorial hall in the 19th century was created just for those U.S. Army generals and officers, no Confederates there either. Even our motto from 1898, duty, honor, country, is anti-Confederate. Okay, if that's true then, why all these things about West, but why are all these things named, at, particularly after Lee, but after, after anyone else? So what I found was that they were named in the 1930s, 
like Lee Road uh, uh, and why 1930s? It's a reaction to integration. When black cadets come back for the first time in the 1930s, after a 50-year absence, all of a sudden we name a bunch of things after Lee. Then, then there's some that come in the 1950s, early 50s. Why those? Because the Army is fighting against integrating. Truman has issued Executive Order 9981 to integrate the Army, and the Army fights that tooth and nail. Two secretaries of the Army are actually fired because they won't follow the orders. And, and one of them ha puts a, 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 uh, a portrait of Lee in Confederate gray with an enslaved servant in the background that's still there, still hanging there. The next group comes in the 1970s, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, when minority admission starts and West Point goes from a handful of black cadets a year to scores a year. And that's when we name Lee Barracks. There are even a couple of monuments that come in 2001 and 2002, almost inexplicable to Lee. It's that one is a statue to Lee. And I think that has to be because the, the, the classes that gave that in 1955, uh, 1950, class of uh, 57 and class of 61 grew up on this lost cause myth. So I go through my entire life of all these things that that gave me purpose, and they all were they all venerated the Confederates. So I finally, in the last chapter, I look at Lee, and the chapter, the title, I, I, I'm an armor officer, so I'm a scholar, I'm a historian, but I'm also an armor officer. Tanks, and we only know one way of going, and that's straight ahead. Uh, so I think I very clearly articulate my position on Lee, which is that he chose treason to preserve slavery. Chose treason to preserve slavery. So let me give you my argument for that. Um, why treason? Well, treason uh, is, oh, there's only one crime in the United States Constitution, and that is that levying war against the United States is, is treason. And, and, the, and, the, and the, concert, the, the Congress or Continental Congress meant to limit it. They didn't want political speech to be considered treason. They just wanted people that were actually trying to destroy the country through violence to do it. And if, if anybody went levied war against the United States, it was Lee. He did it long. He did it well. Um, and he probably was responsible for the deaths of more U.S. Army soldiers than enemy and than any enemy general in American history. Let me say that again. He is responsible for the deaths of more U.S. Army soldiers than any other enemy general in uh, in our history. Um, and so so I think that he committed treason. The other part is, is that. Douglas Southall Freeman, his great biographer, won the Pulitzer Prize in, I think, 1935, said that it was the decision he was born to make. Well, I don't agree with that. And here's why. In 1861, by the time Virginia secedes in late May of 1861, um, it, there are eight U.S. Army colonels from Virginia, all West Point graduates in the United States Army. Eight. Eight U.S. Army colonels in the Army from Virginia. Seven of them. Seven stay with the United States. Uh, one and only one decides to go and, and renounce his oath uh, as, as Lee, Lee sends his resignation letter in, despite Winfield Scott vouching for him, saying that he was going to stay loyal. By the way, Winfield Scott was another Virginian that he would stay loyal. In fact, he, Winfield Scott says he is true as steel, sir, true as steel, when asked about Lee. Lee mails in his uh, uh, letter of resignation and accepts uh, commission with the Virginia militia, even before the three days it takes to process the letter of resignation. So I think that he chose treason. Now, he was never convicted of this. He was indicted for treason, never convicted for a bunch of different reasons. John Reeves has a great book on this called The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee. Um, but it doesn't take a conviction for a historian to analyze the facts and say that someone who served in the U.S. Army for over 30 years and was uh, 
not many other people that served it. There were a couple, but most people that served as long as he did stayed loyal. And so why did he do this? Well, the, what he has said was, I can't raise my, um, my, my sword against my native state. Well, there were certainly a lot of other people that had no problem uh, fighting for the United States against their native state. In fact, one famous one, uh, George St. Uh, I can't remember his name, Cook, I think it was his last name, said that I owe my country much, my state little. So he chose this when most others did not. And I think it was because of his undying belief in a, the social system of slavery. Um, he spent from late 1857 into 1860, not with his regiment in Texas, but rather on uh, Arlington running the enslaved labor farms, the three enslaved labor farms with 200 enslaved people after his father-in-law died. Uh, he was the largest enslaver in the U.S. Army at that time and the only one that was really running enslaved labor farms. His uh, boss, Winfield Scott, gave him those two and a half years almost to uh, paid administrative leave, the only one in the whole antebellum army that got that much time to run that, uh, to run those things. And I believe that he ended up thinking more like, uh, like an enslaver than he did a U.S. Army officer. Um, also, he was a cruel enslaver. Um, uh, there, the, the, the historians have looked at this carefully, uh, say that, that Wesley Norris was whipped. That was one of his slaves that came, that he took, came back from, uh, um, uh, from that had, had escaped into or had found freedom in Maryland, brought back, and there was a whipping post on Arlington. The name of the overseer matches. Uh, he also sold families apart for profit under the hiring system. His father-in-law did not and recognized enslaved marriages. Lee broke apart all but one family during that time, and the, certainly the enslaved people on uh, these two places saw him as a cruel enslaver. The other thing is, is that in, in, in uh, 1863, he writes a letter to the Confederate uh, Secretary of War saying after the Emancipation Proclamation that now we've really got to win this war or else our social system, slavery, will be destroyed. Our families will suffer pollution, this, this racist trope that somehow black men are to be feared sexually when, of course, in fact, white men are the ones that are doing 99.9999% of the rape. In fact, that's why it was a rape society uh, during that time. Most young men um, had their first sexual experience with an enslaved woman or girl uh, during this era. Um, and Lee fought to create a slave republic. He knew why they were fighting. They were clear as to why they were fighting. So I believe uh, that Lee chose treason, didn't have to do it in order to um, fight for a slave republic. So the, uh, the, 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 really the way I started, I knew that I think that I had to write this is in the, as I put in the epilogue is I went back to, to, to WNL. I went back to my alma mater. They invited me back right after the Charlottesville, uh, white supremacist violence there. And a good friend of mine, Ted Delaney, uh, Ted was a, a professor at, at, at WNL. In fact, he started as a custodian there in the early 1960s, 20 years later, he got his degree, uh, then he, uh, uh, after that, he, he then left for, uh, after he got his degree in 1985, then eventually went, got his PhD at William and Mary, came back to WNL and, uh, eventually became professor emeritus, this conscious of WNL, one of my great heroes. And that's the other thing I found about this is as I was going through finding these stories, I found these wonderful stories of people who I didn't know about Ted Delaney, who was this professor emeritus, um, uh, Samuel Tucker from Alexandria who did the first sit-in movement in the 1930s in Alexandria, later fought in Italy, a black man, um, as an officer, and then was one of the lead attorneys in Brown versus the Board of Education. 
I didn't know anything about this because the kudzu of the lost cause, that's what I like to call it, it, it chokes out every other part of the history to give you this false narrative. And so I went to tell this story at Robert at, at, at WNL. And in fact, there's a picture of me, you can, or, or there's the lectures on YouTube. I'm talking with the recumbent statue framing me in the background. Oh, I was so nervous to give this talk um, because I was going back to my alma mater. And remember, I, I wasn't one of those status. I wanted status when I went there, but I was an army guy. Uh, funny last name. I wasn't some storied family uh, with a storied name. I, you know, Sigily is kind of a weird name. Uh, and I was there to, to tell my alma mater something that I was afraid they weren't ready to hear, but I had to tell my truth. So framed by the recumbent statue, the last time I'd been on that stage was when I was, uh, getting my commission in 1984. And I told my alma mater that, um, that Lee chose treason to preserve slavery. And the reaction from the 90, from the mainly white audience was a standing ovation. Couldn't believe it. I, I, I mean, part of me thought this warm glow of acceptance. You know, I felt so uh, good about it. On the other hand, of course, a, a single speech doesn't change an institution and it doesn't change our society. Um, but I knew that writing a book like this, using myself, uh, my own story, may help other people who don't want to accept the facts because facts don't change minds. Uh, culture trumps facts every time. But maybe uh, stories, however, can change mine. And I was hoping that my story could do that. And I've, I've had a lot of great um, uh, people have been much more positive about this book than they were six years ago about that video. Now, don't get me wrong. I get so many trolls, uh, whether it's on Twitter or one star reviews on, on Amazon. If you don't like the book, go on there. You can see all of them. There are plenty there to take an example from. Uh, but I did think that this was a way of doing that. Now, I guess there's one other thing that I want to say about this, and that is, you know, the the the, the violence on January 6th. And my book came out right after that. And when I saw the flag of treason, again, I, I try to use different language than you may have heard. The United States Army, enslaved labor farms, treason, traitor. And to me, that Confederate flag, of course, it's the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. To me, it's the flag of treason. And when I saw it going past that picture of Charles Sumner, Sumner was the 18, uh, was the was a, uh, abolitionist senator from Massachusetts um, who was nearly caned to death on the floor of the Senate uh, by Preston Brooks, a South Carolinian, who, because Sumner had excoriated enslavers and Brooks nearly beat him to death. I tell you, political violence to enforce racial control is as old as the Republic. This The, the fact that, that we had there, I wasn't surprised about political violence. I was surprised it was in the Capitol. But to see the flag of treason go by in there and then to see that hangman's noose outside the Capitol, it was both an insurrection, sedition, and an old-fashioned lynch mob incited by the president to have a lynch mob. And I, I just, I couldn't believe that. And it's made me want to, 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 again, to tell as many people as I can that this lost cause myth that many of us grew up with, I grew up with, um, isn't uh, is it real? And it has a nefarious purpose to enforce racial uh, racial control and to enforce white supremacy. And it's only when we, so really that really is comes to the conclusion of my book, which is that the only way to, uh, uh, to prevent a racist future is to first acknowledge and understand our racist past. And if we can acknowledge it, we can get there. We can't have reconciliation without truth and accountability first. And I'm hoping that whether whatever the the, the means that, that that has to happen, um, that we can start to do that. I am proud to say that I'm serving on the National Commission on uh, Renaming, 
which will help rename the bases that are named that that are currently named after Confederates. Um, and it's been the honor of my life to once again raise my right hand uh, and take that oath of office to serve the nation in a far different way than the than the 36 years that I served uh, in uniform. But I'm but I'm very proud to do that. So I thank you for your kind attention in listening to me. Uh, and I really look forward. I hope some of you have questions. Would love to to answer those if if I can. So. Thank you very much. Thank you, Guy. Uh, really appreciate that. And uh, yes, we do have questions. Um, and and th the first one is is really pertinent to the the, the last item that you were mentioning about uh, the possibility of, of renaming some of uh, our army bases. Someone uh, had asked a question during your talk about uh, the possibility that Washington and Lee uh, would change their name. Uh, and wondered, uh, A, do you have any information about that? And B, what your thoughts are about that? I have no information about that. I'm, I'm not connected to the school in any way other than to be an interested alumnus. Um, I know that uh, the, the Board of Trustees is considering it. Um, for them, it's a heavy lift. At West Point and at VMI, VMI's changed quite a bit. They have a higher headquarters, which is Congress and the General Assembly. And when Congress or the General Assembly says move, they move because they're an obedience-based organization. I know I was in uniform for, for all those decades. WNL has a board of trustees and a board of trustees is a very different thing than a, than a group of politicians. It can be very agile or it cannot be. And I think it has to have two thirds vote to change it. Uh, that's a heavy lift for them. For me though, uh, I can't honor Robert E. Lee. There's a difference between commemoration and history. Commemoration is who we value as a society today, and it's constantly changing. And so there's nothing wrong with changing things as, as uh, we do that. At West Point, we have a dozen or so monuments on the level of the plane, right, where all the, the, the cadets do their parade. And uh, all there have been, over the course of time, 25 different monuments there. And they've all but one of them has either been changed or altered. So, so we can do this. So what do I think? I, that university is so much better than when I went there. I've been there a couple of times recently. The students are better. The faculty are better. Uh, the, the curriculum is better. The education is better. Everything about that is so much better than it used to be. It is no longer General Lee's College, which was the name of the book that came out in 1967. And the iconography of WNL is all about that general. And you may put a fig leaf on it and say it's about his time as a president, but Lee committed treason to preserve slavery. And that is not someone that I could ever honor. So uh, my position certainly is, is that WNL would be far, far better shape if it got rid of it. There are only two other schools in the country that have a Confederate in its, in its name. And they're both fine schools. But WNL is a top 10 liberal arts school. And uh, it will not be able to compete into the future as long as it has a as Lee in that masthead. We'll, we'll stay in Lexington for the next question, which comes from Hank, who is a native of Lexington and also an uh, alumnus of uh, the other very uh, prominent school, of course, in Lexington, and that's the Virginia Military Institute. And uh, Hank had asked, uh, what would you say to people who uh, say we're erasing history? Yeah, well, remember that that well, let's say let's say Jackson. So at Jackson, if you're taking a history course at VMI, a Civil War history course, are you going to still do history of Jackson at Chancellorsville? Well, yes, of course you are. If you do a Civil War course, you're going to do the history. History is what historians do to try to understand the past in our present context. Commemoration 
is instead who we value as a society. And that changes all the time. But history changes too, because the thing about history changing is, is you have to, if you say that history never changes, what is that one period where it never changes from? Are you going to pick that one date where it never changes? So in other words, are you going to say it's 1912 when the least, when the Jackson statue was put up at VMI with the height of lynching at the height of Jim Crow segregation at the height of disenfranchising for black people? Is that where you want to say history should never change from? And if so, does that also mean you don't want anything to change about Jim Crow or violence or anything else that's changed since then? So the way we understand that. So yeah, the, the, the commemoration is going to continue to change. History always changes. But what's really changing is who do you value as a society? And the values of people that chose treason to preserve slavery just isn't what I want to value. And I don't think it's what Americans want to value because slavery, it, it, all you have to do is read a little bit more about slavery. It was monstrous, horrific. It was horrific then. And you say, well, Ty, you're, you're being presentist. Well, you're forgetting that 4 million black people lived in slavery. Do you think they thought slavery was good in the American South during that time? No. All you have to do is look at how they tried to escape, how they, how they did everything they could to prevent more slavery. So um, commemoration, remember, that's what it is. Who do you value as a society? It's changing. And that's a good thing because we're being, becoming a better society because of it. You mentioned... Uh very strong language about Lee, of course, as uh, uh, a traitor who committed treason. Uh, there's, a, of course, another well-known historical figure uh, of the revolutionary period, Benedict Arnold. Um, how do you how do you see those two in terms of their their context and, and place in history, and uh, how some people, some historians, have viewed them differently? Yeah, it's a great question. So Arnold, of course, uh, I mean, I used to talk about Arnold all the time because at West Point, that's where he committed his treason was at West Point. And there's a plaque that's still there at West Point. And there's a plaque in our old cadet chapel. Uh, there, there are plaques to all the, the, the Revolutionary War generals, Washington at the top, but, but Lafayette, Green, von Steuben, all those people are there. Uh, and then in the choir loft hidden is a plaque that has born 1740, Major General, and then etched out. So he was the greatest tactical commander of the war, uh, of the war by far. I mean, it's great tactical commander. I don't know if we would have won the war without his heroism at Valcour Island and at Saratoga, but, uh, you know, he chose treason. So you can look, I mean, this is a, a complicated thing. There are things that are similar and things that are different. Uh, the differences are, you know, I think uh, that Arnold did his for money and for fame. Uh, I don't think Lee did it for that reason. Uh, Arnold didn't do it for slavery. And I think Lee did do it for slavery. So there are different ways of looking at it. But if you look at contemporary sources during that period, boy, they, to I mean, Civil War contemporary sources, there are plenty of cartoons and, and things that link Davis and Lee to Arnold. So certainly during the war there, and right after that, in the early reconstruction period, there are people that link those two together. Um, uh, but, but I don't think Arnold did it to create a race-based society. I don't think Lee did it um, for the money. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, accept the fact that, you know, his biggest in, in investment was in enslaved people. That's certainly what he garnered most of his wealth in 18. His only uh, will that he did was in the me beginning of the Mexican war, Mexican American war, when he was worth about $40,000, which is quite a, a large sum. Most of that was created off the wealth of hiring out the enslaved people that his mother had left him. So, so this is somebody who benefited his entire life from slavery. So it, it, I think that there are, that certainly would be an interesting book 
uh, Arnold and Lee to to think about the different ways that they committed their treason, uh, both both things that were different and things that were similar. But uh, that doesn't make me want to say change my my thing that that by the Constitution, um, clearly to me, Lee chose treason and he chose treason to preserve slavery. So you had referenced this a bit uh, towards the end of your your comments, but I wonder whether uh, you would expand on this a little bit more because this has come up a couple of times in our in our questions. Is how would you compare uh, your thesis on the lost cause with the divisive politics we have uh, in in today? Well, I do think that there are a couple of interesting things. Um, the first is that to me, the lost cause is the is the big lie in American history. It's the big lie. And it's a big lie to support white supremacy, to support a white political power. Um, the idea that uh, that President Trump won the election is another lie. It's a big lie. Uh, we don't have that many of them in American history. Uh, we do have a few. But so I think there are some comparisons there. It's also a majority, vastly majority of, of white citizens uh, who were doing that, that insurrection. Um, and so that, I mean, that tells you something else. I don't, I'm not an expert on on current white uh, extremism movements and white supremacy uh, today and how that manifests itself. Certainly, I'm concerned about it. Uh, I'm concerned when people don't accept the results of a democratic election, which is kind of, I think they almost did accept that in 1860. They just said, we're not going to live by it. Um, so anytime that you have a democracy that doesn't accept the results of an election, and then you have a lynch mob. And I think I think it was Charles Dew, the great historian who's at Williams that wrote uh, wrote about uh, um, uh, Apostles of Disunion and several other books. I think one on, on the history of Richmond, too, that, that said that this was a lynch mob. And the more I think about that, it really does seem as though it was a lynch mob out to get Mike Pence or AOC or Nancy Pelosi. And thank goodness that there were no uh, people in there that they could have reached because I think they would have they would have they would have slaughtered them. And so I, I'm, I certainly am worried about this and worried about that this this idea of making our elections no longer uh, um, that they, people won't accept the elections like the 1860. But I'm not an expert on it by any means. So there have been a number of questions also about monuments, of course, mm. uh, and other symbols. Uh, so sort of in, in a general sense, um, how do you feel about uh, the ways in which a community can tell the history of itself through public art and monuments? Well, I, I think I think we need we always have done that as a society. and We always will have public monuments, public art. And remember that when you put a monument up, it, it tells you more about the people that put it up, not the people's venerated. So when when the people that put these Confederate monuments up, mainly between 1890 and 1930, though certainly plenty after 1930, but the ones between 1890 and 1920 um, were done, went to really celebrate the Redeemer governments. This is when Virginia redid its constitution. Carter Glass famously said, well, of course we're doing this for segregation. We're doing this to make sure that, quote, Negroes uh, don't have the vote. That's that's exactly why we're doing this. So these came up at a period when when white Southerners became a racial police state. They got control back after Reconstruction, and it took them a couple decades before they were able to do that. And then they put these monuments up in towns across the South. In fact, they were you know there were salesmen coming to each one of these little towns saying, "Hey, you know, City X has got their statue. Why don't why don't you have yours?" So these came up throughout there, but they represent something terrible. 
Uh, and we should understand that they were representative of a deeply racist a racial police state. And now I'm not saying that the national government should take care of this federal government. This is a local issue that they should do. And if find new heroes, I did in my book, Samuel Tucker, who now has a high school or an elementary school named after him in Alexandria has got uh, fantastic that we've created. We found these new heroes. I hope they do something after Ted Delaney at Washington Lee University, who is an absolute hero. They've done things after John Chavis, who graduated from Washington College or Washington Academy, whatever it was called, in 1799, for goodness sake. I never knew about that when I graduated from WNL. So who we represent tells you what we value as a society. And the kudzu of the lost cause has overwhelmed all the other things that we might be able to do. I'll also say that I've been in every major city in the South, maybe not everyone, but most of them have amazing museums now that tell the story of, of particularly civil rights, not slavery as much because it's still so awful. We haven't really come to grips with that as much, but certainly talk about civil rights. And, and that's Montgomery, Jackson, Memphis. Rich, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not sure I haven't been to Richmond in ages, but uh, Washington has that. Alexander, Virginia has it. So many of these cities have these museums. And that tells you that we're changing the narrative. And that that makes me hopeful. So you, you had mentioned Arlington National Cemetery specifically. Do you know if there is any effort afoot to make any changes uh, to the uh, iconography there? Well, there's certainly if it uh, our remit for the commission is if it's in the Department of Defense, then we have a remit uh, to make sure nothing glorifies those who voluntarily served in the Confederacy or the Confederates. But there are also things that are outside our remit. So, for instance, you know, National Park Service things. Uh, the the um, Arlington House, the Custis Mansion, is now called. I don't know if you knew. I didn't realize this till later. Is the Robert E. Lee Memorial? And of course, when was it? Scratch a monument to Robert E. Lee or the Confederates? And it what would be the date you find? So that date that it was changed, 1955. The year after Brown versus the board, Congress passes a law, again, when the South was a racial police state controlled by the Democratic Party and and named that after Robert E. Lee. Uh, so the fact that the and of course, he, you know, he it, it's not about him. I mean, the Arlington wasn't it was his wife's property. And then his father-in-law's, who was the adopted son or grandson of uh, George Washington. Um, so we find these things throughout throughout America. Uh, our remit is those things within the Department of Defense. So if it's in the Department of Defense, then we're certainly going to take a look at it. Okay. And you had mentioned uh, the work that you're doing uh, on renaming the Army bases, but I imagine that you're also continuing to do research as an historian. I wonder whether you would share with us uh, what you're working on and what might be coming next. Well, I'm, I have a little, I'd love to. Thank you. I, I have a short story in, um, in the book that I'm expanding, and it was a time it's sort of Confederate monuments again in West Point. I, I, I love West Point. I love the stories of West Point. So Nixon came to West Point in 1971 at the nadir of the U.S. Army. And uh, I mean, race riots, drug problems, the end of the Vietnam War, and gave a speech to, to, to sort of help uh, to, to lead a moral rebirth. And he went and saw our, the Confederate, the, the, the monument on, on West Point, not the Confederate, the great monument, the, the U.S. Army monument there. And he asked, where's the Confederate monument? And so he demanded West Point put a huge Confederate monument on Trophy Point. And then, so I'm going to tell that story, particularly how black cadets uh, rise, rose up against them and, and, and really started a process that changed West Point and changed the Army by the student activism among cadets 
uh, which eventually uh, made its way to the White House, to the Pentagon, um, and started changing the army. So I'm working on this story of these, these, uh, these black cadets who, uh, who I know well. They graduated in 1972, uh, and I want to tell their story. So that's what I'm working on is sort of Confederate memory, West Point, and race, which is my, uh, uh, the thing that interests me the most, and uh, this, time, this time from a different lens. So thanks for asking. Well, Ty, th thank you so much for your uh, your comments today. Thank uh, thank everybody for uh, their questions. This was really a fascinating discussion, uh, and we're so glad that you all could join us. I hope you'll be able to join us uh, again on uh, May 20th at noon uh, for our next banner lecture uh, by Chris uh, Leahy, uh, President Without a Party, The Life of John Tyler. In the meantime, please be well. Thank you again for your support, and have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.